Uh, if that guy is unfamiliar to you, let me introduce that guy to you. That is Justin, okay? So if you haven't been here uh, the past two weeks, that's Justin Evans. He's our lead pastor. He's uh, taking a little summer sabbatical. Um, and as he just mentioned, we have an incredible opportunity this week that Justin and I will be flying out Tuesday evening uh, to Ethiopia. We'll be heading to the, the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. Um, we arrive in country Thursday at 1230 in the morning. Um, it's a long 14-hour flight with a couple of layovers uh, in some Middle Eastern countries. Um, pray for safety. Uh, pray for wisdom. We are a church that wants to plant churches, that plant churches, that plant churches. This has been a part of our DNA from the very beginning, uh, that we are a church plant who will plant churches, both locally and internationally as well. So this opportunity has been presented to us, and we said, okay, let's, let's see what's going on there. So there's a church in Addis right now. Uh, it's an international evangelical church is what the, the name of the church is. And this church, their uh, kind of purpose and their drive is that we want to plant churches for people uh, that can understand the language. And so America is the, the Ethiopian language. However, they're kind of a melting pot right now in the capital city of Ethiopia. And also we're traveling into northern, northwestern Ethiopia. And so what they're planning on doing is they're planting English-speaking churches because English is kind of the, the common business language. It's language that uh, their, their children are taught at an early, an early age if they are going to school. And so their mission and their goal is that we're going to plant churches that are English-speaking churches so we can reach the, the broadest community. So Justin and I have a number of meetings set up with uh, pastors who are currently in church planting. And our whole goal going over there is figure out how can we help them and how can they help us? We don't simply want to be an organization or a, uh, a church that is sending money overseas. We want to be a, a partnership, a true partnership. Uh, so please be in prayer for that. Uh, Justin and I will be gone in a full week, which means next Sunday, Justin won't be here either, but I'm so excited of who we have coming next Sunday. Justin's father, uh, Larry Evans, will be with us next Sunday. And also, just so you know, John Mark is in country now. He landed in New York City last night, uh, and he will be back with us this coming Sunday. Uh, and Larry Evans will come down from Dallas. He's a pastor up there, and he's got one of the, I would say, toughest jobs as a pastor. His job is titled pastoral care. He's pastor of a large church in Dallas, and his entire job is going and meeting with the sick and meeting with the hurting. Uh, he's in charge of over 7,000 members uh, of hospital visits and of doing funerals. A very tough job. Uh, and he is going to speak next week uh, with his experience of, of looking at that position and, and seeing the hurt and, and seeing the sick. And he's going to walk you through a Psalm of David where we get to experience the, the compassionate side uh, coming from a guy like Larry. I am so excited and I want to be here, but at the same time, I'm, I'm drawn to Ethiopia. Uh, so please be in prayer for us as we're, as we're going on that trip next week. I want you to take a journey with me now uh, and just pause and, and imagine, take yourself through a scenario here. Uh, you are going to work tomorrow. Tomorrow is Monday. I'm sorry. You go to work tomorrow and uh, you go in and you hear some commotion kind of going around the office place. And this commotion is that uh, the branch that you are currently at of a national company, you've just found out that the national corporate office has decided to add a position into your branch. 
And so you're going to go to your boss. You say, hey, uh, sir, I've heard that there is this new position that they're putting in this branch. Can you tell me anything about it? And your boss says, yeah, it's actually above me. So your branch manager is even kind of getting a position above him. And you're thinking, okay, well, I guess that they're designing a new position. They're going to kind of reorganize some titles maybe. And obviously that boss that I have is going to step into that role. But pause, you have heard some rumors, and you've heard that the national office actually doesn't want your boss to kind of step into that role, but the national office actually wants you to step into that role, wants you to kind of take position of the the branch, and your fellow coworkers are also kind of pushing you to that position, to uh, now the, the branch lead, this brand new position. Your boss also gets word of this. Your boss is a little bit upset about this because your boss is like the boss. It's the guy that's been in charge. And now he finds out there's going to be this new position above me, and it's going to you. And so your boss starts to kind of make your life miserable, gives you all of those tasks that you absolutely hate, and everybody knows that everybody in the office hates, but somebody has to do it. Gives you all of that overtime on the weekends, on the Friday nights. And now you decide, you know what, I'm not sure this is worth it. I'm going to go ahead and step down from my position. So you actually leave your job, and you're going to start looking for other jobs around the area doing the same thing. And so you do. And as you're calling and and making some phone calls for uh, this new position, you've actually found out that your boss has actually called ahead. And he's left a reference for you. But it's not quite a positive reference. Your boss has, has taken your, 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 your rap sheet, everything that you've done for him as a corporate employee, and he's erased everything good and only told them all of the bad stuff. So you're without a job now. You've stepped down, and you can't get a job anywhere else. And the mortgage payment's coming up, and the funds are decreasing. How do you feel in that time? What's your emotions? What actions are you possibly going to take? This is a tame version of what we see in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. I'm going to once again uh, do a quick overview of where our text comes from. So we're going to look at Psalm 52 today. But Psalm 52, it directly relates back, just as it did last week, into 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is where uh, Psalm 52 is kind of getting uh, the information from. But in order for us to look at Psalm 21 and 22, we actually need to go even further back. Because Psalm 21 and 22, uh, it doesn't make much sense unless we have the context of it. So we we begin with Saul. Uh, Saul, he's the king of Israel. The the nation of Israel has been without a king. Their king has simply been God. God has, has been their king, but the nation of Israel has looked around them, and they see the surrounding areas all have kings, and they're all flourishing, and Israel says, we want that. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations, and so God says, okay, I will give you a king. You have rejected me as king, but I will give you a king, and so God gives them Saul. He gives them Saul as their king. Chapter 10. Uh, Fast forward a little bit, and lo and behold, Saul ends up actually rejecting God. Saul was given a task. Hey, go conquer these people, but don't take anything. Whenever you conquer them, simply leave everything behind. Don't take any loot. Uh, Don't bring any people back, not even any goats, any lambs. Leave everything after you have destroyed it. Well, Saul goes in and he destroys everything and he brings stuff back. He has now rejected God and God ends up then rejecting him in chapter 15. God then uh, chooses a new king and he chooses David. He chooses David as his king. Saul, however, 
is very jealous of David. Very jealous that he has been removed from that position and God has now chosen David to fulfill that. And so Saul takes a big leap here and he decides, okay, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna simply kill David. This is my plan. David and Saul's son were really good friends and Saul's son has, has figured out his dad's plan. And so he decides, you know what? I'm gonna tell David. And so he tells David. David is now going to flee for his life. He flees for his life away from Saul. And so what brings us now to chapter 21 and 22? After Saul has been uh, searching for David, he's kind of been unable to find him. And David in chapter 21 comes to a city called Nob. And here in the city of Nob, he goes to the priest. Uh, the priest's name is Ahimelech. And the priest here takes care of David. He, he finds favor with David. He gives him food. He gives him some shelter. And he also gives him something very odd. He gives him the sword of Goliath. Goliath that was slain, they had his sword laying there, and David is needing some protection. He knows that Saul's coming after him, so he, the, the priest is like, here, have this massive sword, and David takes the sword then of David. While David's being taken care of, we're including on a certain individual, a certain person who has kind of witnessed this event, somebody who was like a fly on the wall and sees the priest is taking care of David. First uh, Samuel 21, 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So Doeg, great name, by the way. I suggest you name your first son Doeg. He will love you forever, I promise. He's part of Saul's payroll. Uh, he's on Saul's uh, pay. He is his chief herdsman. He's the guy who's going to take care of all of Saul's flock, which, as being king, would be numerous. He's now seen what the priest has done for Saul's enemy. It's the enemy of my master. I have seen this. So Saul one day is out in the field, and he's out in the field with uh, his kind of leaders of his herds, and he's, he's upset. He's upset at his men. These are herdsmen. They, they are all over the place. Surely one of them has to have known where David has gone, and yet none of them have told me anything about where David is. I'm searching for this David guy, and none of you seem to know anything. Well, it just so happens that Doeg is there. And he speaks up and he, he lets Saul know, hey, Saul, I know what happened with that David guy. In fact, I saw the priest of, of Nob. He actually not only knows where David is, he actually helped David a lot. Uh, he gave him some food. He gave him some water. Oh, and by the way, he gave him this huge sword of Goliath. Saul is furious now. He's furious, and so he's going to call all of the priests of Nob. He calls Ahimelech the lead priest, and he calls his family and any other priest with him. And so they're all now coming to Saul the king. And Saul is explaining his anger with Ahimelech. How dare you? I thought that we were buddies. You've now said that you're going to take care of my enemy. This is not a good thing for you. And so Saul actually orders his guard to kill the priest and those that are with him. And the guard says, hold on. We're not going to do that because these are priests. These are men of God, and we're not going to go against them and kill them. That's a good idea. However, Saul's like, I'm not content with that answer. So he then looks at his chief herdsman. He looks at Doeg. He says, hey, Doeg, do what I just told those guys to do. And Doeg does. 
And he does it in an extreme way. Uh, Our text tells us that he ends up killing 85 priests that day, but he doesn't stop there. He's not done. He's not content with just having the people that came to Saul and killing all 85 of them. He now heads the city of Nob, and he kills men, he kills women, he kills children, he kills infants. He even goes down and kills the ox, the donkeys, and the sheep. He does a total annihilation. One man goes in and destroys everything he can see. Ahimelech had a son at that time, and the son actually escapes. The son escapes the, the wrath of Doeg, and he ends up going and telling David. He approaches David, and he tells him what's just taken place. Place yourself in the shoes of David here for a second. That you have been on the run, somebody has come and has taken care of you, and now that somebody's son has approached you and explained everything I know is gone now. And everything I know is gone because you have taken favor with my dad. Because my dad gave you food and clothing and shelter, he's now dead. My entire family is now dead. All of our livestock is now dead. What do you say in a moment like this? How do you respond when such an evil act occurs? And is there a piece of responsibility that you kind of feel there's, there's a weight? Maybe I shouldn't have taken that. Maybe I should have just tried to stay by myself. Place yourself in the shoes of David and feel the emotions that you would feel as this son has approached you after just losing his father and losing everything he knows. That brings us now to Psalm 52. That's the background that we need to walk through and to feel the emotion, the actions that we just saw to bring us now to Psalm 52. Psalm 52 is David's response to Doeg. Let me read it again for us. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So like I said, this is David's response now to Doeg. It begins by pointing towards the the character of Doeg. Verse 1, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Boasting of evil. Notice that he's pointing to Doeg enjoying this. It's, It's a boasting, a proclamation of look what I have done. Doeg's almost proud of his accomplishments here. He almost thinks that what he has done is a correct and right thing because Saul, the king, has asked me to do it. So therefore, I must be a hero. I've done what he has asked to the nth degree. I've not only asked, he's not only asked me to kill the priest, but I went all the way to the city of Nob and I've annihilated everything. Surely this is a good thing. He's helped out Saul and he has done what he thinks is, is good. 
One commentary here uh, on discussing this even mentions that he, he has mistaken his accomplishment for goodness. That he has looked at his accomplishment and has mistaken what he has accomplished as being good. There's many actions that we do on a daily basis that might seem like the right thing to do according to our society, according to our friends, even according to our families. But they're in fact not good. We often fall into a trap that I'll call comparative Christianity. That we look at each other, and this is how we base ourselves, is based upon those who are standing around us. We're constantly comparing ourselves to one another. Have you noticed in advertising, the key piece of advertising, why are there people usually in ads? There are people in ads because they want to see you seeing yourself as that individual. Man, that looks like so much fun. I would love to be in whatever that situation is. And buying, obviously, that product makes me feel that way. We are comparing ourselves and trying to place ourselves in the shoes of that ad. Realtors do the exact same thing. The purpose of a realtor, they would love for, for you to speak the words as you're touring a house of, I want to paint that wall orange. Or, man, our love seat would fit perfectly right here. They know if you're, you're beginning to take ownership of this, you're beginning to compare what you currently have and compare and place yourself in the situation, you're much closer than to the selling gap. Our society understands this. We're constantly, however, as a society, comparing ourselves to the wrong things. What we constantly are comparing ourselves is to one another. That's a big flaw. We instead should be comparing ourselves to this, to Scripture, to God's holy and perfect word. The Bible is often referred to as the canon. Uh, it's referred to as the canon of Scripture, uh, or simply this is known as the canon. Uh, it's a Greek word where we get the, the term canon from. Uh, it's not the boom canon, but instead uh, is a, a corporate uh, of text together. The word canon, uh, original language meaning of the, the word canon is standard or rule. Even you can think of it as ruler, not as king ruler, but as how big is this ruler? Canon is the word used for scripture because it is our standard. It is our guide piece. It is our ruler that we measure ourselves against. We oftentimes get into the habit of saying, well, my sin's not as bad as them. Well, I do this and they don't. Therefore, I'm a little bit better. When instead of putting ourselves against scripture, where scripture is our standard and scripture is our rule, it is by which it is, it is God's word by which we should be comparing ourselves and not one another. The first four verses here of Psalm 52 carry a theme. See if you can pick up on the theme. Let me read it one more time. See if you can pick up the key words here. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, oh, deceitful tongue. Did you hear it in there? Boast, tongue, lying, speaking, words, tongue once again. There's a theme of language within these first four verses. A theme of, of spoken words. Saul isn't here focusing upon the actions of Doeg. Don't miss that. The actions of Doeg were terrible, but Saul's not focusing upon the actions of him. He's instead 
focusing upon the language after the actions. He's focusing upon the boasting. He's focusing upon the evil tongue of Doeg. When a sin occurs within your own life, what is your language like? Does your tongue seem to love more evil than good? Or is it the opposite? Does your own sin within your life disgust you? Whenever we look at our sin, it should be a disgusting piece. We should want to avoid that at all times. What we see here with Doeg, it's not like that. He's instead of boasting of it. These are tough questions to ask, but I think they're questions that we need to be able to answer. How do you deal with your own sin within your life? David now begins to transition the psalm. We go from his uh, disgust with Doeg, and now we transition into how God's actually going to deal with Doeg. It's the ultimate question here upon earth of what's God going to do with the terrible, terrible people of this world? Or why does evil seem to flourish? It's a question that is often answered, uh, a, question that, uh, a question that is often asked, excuse me, uh, a question that is not answered, I would say, enough. It's a hard question of we look on the news and there is evil. Where's God within this? We hear four Marines being killed this week. Where is God's hand within this? Are, are, we, are we here? Are, is God here with us? God, where are you during these times? And I think our text answers it. Our text here answers it within the very first verse of chapter 52. The second stanza there. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. That's our answer. If you look back at the book of Job, the book of Job is uh, an interesting book. If you've never read the book of Job, I highly suggest it. It's, it's a story of a man who had uh, wealth, wealth beyond measure. He had everything that you could want. And it be, the story of Job, the book of Job, begins with kind of a conversation uh, between Satan and between God of, hey, God, Job only loves you because you have blessed him. And God's like, no, that's not true. And, and Satan is saying, well, let me show you the, how it is true. And God allows that to happen. And so Job ends up losing everything. He loses his family. He loses all of his, his money, his resources, his animals. Uh, literally, the man is left with, ev- with nothing except for uh, his wife, which he lost everything good. And he's left with his wife. And you see later on, uh, his wife has, I would say, the worst advice in the book of Job. Uh, She comes to Job, and Job's literally in a sackcloth, sitting in ashes. Literally, everything has gone terrible for him. He's with the the people who are moaning, people who are groaning, uh, and he's lost everything. And Job's wife comes up to him, and her great advice to him is, curse God and die. That's her advice. And, and then you realize why he took everything good and he left Job's wife back with him. But the book of Job then continues where he has three friends and he's constantly asking, where is God? Why has God done this to me? And his three friends are trying to give him advice the whole time. And their advice is, is way off. And God shows up, but he doesn't show up until the 38th chapter of the book of Job. The very end, Job has suffered. He's gone through terrible things, and now he's had terrible counsel of friends. And then God shows up at the end. 
And the entire time, Job is saying, God, where are you? Why have you done this? Why does evil seem to go forth, yet I, a good man, am stuck here with nothing sitting upon the ashes? And God shows up, and he responds to Job, and he, he responds to Job in a very interesting way. He responds to Job by asking Job some questions. He says, where were you, Job, whenever I created the earth? Can you control the lightning? Can you satisfy the lion? God is the ultimate person who can do every one of those. His ultimate answer here is that he is control. I am in control. It happens because I allow it. Verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. The first seven verses of this text are rough. As Kathy read this, I was like, oh, Kathy, you're so sweet. You're having to, to speak of razor-sharp tongues, and God's going to break you down forever and snatch you and tear you from the tent. It's, it's a rough first seven verses, and it doesn't seem like something that we would want to kind of talk through or be a great encouragement. Yay, let's, let's talk about how destructive and terrible people are. We do serve a God that does have standards, though. And if these standards are not met, then we suffer some consequences, as Doeg does here. The last two verses, though, verses 8 and 9, they're written in contrast to the first seven. As you read through verses 1 through 9, you probably picked up on it instantly. The verses 1 through 7 seem to have a constant theme of destruction and just terribleness. And then 8 and 9 changes. And it begins with the word, but, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. It, it portrays the last two verses, the blessed state of one who's living in accordance with God of David here living in accordance with God. And it's also a contrast to verse 5. David here in verse 8 says, but I am like a green olive tree. That's odd for us in a San Antonio uh, kind of mentality to think of a green olive tree. That's, that's kind of odd. Why not like a big live oak or something along those lines? Uh, but there's symbolism involved with this. The olive tree uh, represents flourishing, uh, represents everlasting. David has chosen to place his trust in the steadfast love of God. And he chooses to use the metaphor of an olive tree. An olive tree is a very interesting tree. Uh, I, I read this and I was like, I've got to do some research on olive trees because I obviously don't know enough about olive trees to, to figure out why he would said, I am like a green olive tree. What in the world does that even mean? So if you want to do any research, there's plenty of research out there, by the way, on olive trees. So if you leave here thinking, what in the world? Why would you use olive tree? Feel free. Go, go cruise some commentaries, and you can learn a ton of information about trees within commentaries. Let me just kind of give you a, a summary here, if you will, of an olive tree. So an olive tree is a very large tree uh, whenever it is fully mature, and it has a huge root system. So an olive tree is not a, a tree that is easily going to be blown down because of its massive root system. Uh, it can also thrive in harsh environments. Uh, one of the commentaries that I read said, actually, olive tree, if you plant an olive tree like in a fertile valley, it will grow and it will produce fruit. However, if you plant an olive tree like in rocky soil, the amount of fruit it will produce, the amount of olives that it will produce, the oil will be two, three, even sometimes fourfold that 
of the tree planted in the, the nice, fertile soil. An olive tree seems to flourish within those rough, hard conditions. It's said that an olive tree uh, is, whenever a, a branch is cut, that a, a new branch will automatically form from within that cut. The olive tree uh, will begin producing fruit, producing olives around six years of age. Relatively uh, normal for a tree to begin producing at a, a young age. However, an olive tree is in its prime between 80 and 100 years old. That's when olive trees seem to, to thrive the best is in this 20-year gap between like 80 and 100. Uh, the oldest olive tree that they know of is like 3,000 years old, which is ridiculous to me that they would, first of all, know how to date an olive tree to 3,000 years old, but that a tree would survive uh, for that extended amount of time. David is saying here, I am like a green olive tree. I have a firm foundation. Notice the contrast of verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. He's saying there is no base, that Doeg has no firm foundation. His roots are not deep in the soil. Whereas David is saying, I am standing upon Christ and I, I'm standing upon God. And we today say that we can stand through Christ upon God. Some of you today might have never had a, a chance to, to place your faith in this. To place your faith in a God who, who has that firm foundation, who has that rooting. I want to pause for a second and give you that opportunity. Give you the opportunity to place and trust your faith into Christ. No matter what your circumstances, every single one of us has failed. No matter if you are like the Doeg in this story or if you are like the David in this story, every single one of us has not met this standard. If you've been in God's word for any amount of time, you've noticed that this is tough. This is hard. If you're with us through the book of James, man... It showed me where I lack considerably as we walk through the book of James. And every time I get into God's word, I see the standard that is set before me and I see how far away I am from the standard. Luckily for us, though, the standard that has been set is perfect and we have a perfect way to reach that standard. And this perfect way is not something that I can do. There's nothing I can do to, to reach the standard that has been set before me, uh, but there is something that someone else has done on my behalf. God has made a way in this way is through the perfect and sinless blood of Christ. That God sent his one and only son, being fully God, to earth in the form of a baby. And this man lived for 33 years upon the earth as a sinless creature. That this man was perfect according to, the, to God's word. There was nothing within his life which uh, caused him to come against the holy and perfect God. He ends up paying the ultimate penalty, though. That Christ lived 33 perfect years, and then he died a perfect death. And this death that he died was not even his own death, but it was instead a death in my stead. He paid for my life, and he has paid for yours. Christ is the only one who can uphold this standard. God requires us to believe in the actions of Christ as a covering of sin. I'll give you the opportunity to say the same words as David here. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He says at the end of verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. The Bible tells us that if you believe in your heart 
and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what you have been, no matter where you have come from, if you have a background like Doeg or not, Christ is good enough. Christ has made a way through his perfect death as a covering of sin. I want the band to go ahead and come on forward. And I want a time of reflection uh, and a time of confession, a time of you to evaluate yourself. Do you relate to the doeg in this situation? When sin is made known within your life, are you a boaster? Or do you immediately come to the cross and say, God, I have come against you and I am sorry. What standards are you comparing yourself to today? Is it the standards that are set before us in the world? Is it the standards of those living around us? We serve a God who has set the standard. The standard has not changed, although our our society has. The standard has remained. This is the standard that we are trying to live up towards. Where are you lacking? Have you placed your trust in Christ's perfect sacrifice? Have you let Christ be your standard? If everybody would, just bow your head with me. Look within your own life. Look within your own heart. What does your tongue, what does your action say concerning your sin within your life? Is there possibly a sin that you need to confess to God at this point? Is there repentance that needs to happen? Do you maybe need to make a, a tough phone call this week of, hey, I, I've done a, a bad thing against you. I just need to, to tell you I'm sorry. I need to, to ask for, for you to forgive me of this. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time that you're ever going to place your, your faith and your trust in the perfect life and sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Come to him. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful God. Thank you, Lord, as we we looked at last week, that no matter what our circumstances and our sin are, that you are a God who provides mercy, restoration, and renewal, Father. At this time, Lord, I pray for my own heart. Father, I confess before you that I am indeed a sinner. Father, I thank you that you have made a way for me through Christ. That through the blood of Christ and through his sacrifice upon the cross, Lord, I can call you Abba, Father. Lord, I pray for the community of Stone Oak. Father, that we will be a church that is set to make your name known. Father, as there are individuals who are dealing with with sin within their lives right now, Father, I ask grace and mercy upon them, Lord. Thank you once again, Lord, for your perfect sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that was shed upon the cross. And thank you, Lord, for making a way for every single one of us through the blood of Christ, Lord. It's in his name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we continue worship?